G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas and this is an all new, brand new, never before heard, flashy, exciting instalment of Permission to Think, which is the collaboration that we do with the University of Technology, Sydney. The Dean of Social Sciences there, Professor Alan Davison, is an absolute champion who is committed to making UTS the place where free thinkers feel like they can go, where it's actually fostering a climate environment in which students are exposed to all ideas, in which students feel like they can roll with the punches and wrestle with notions that may not exactly be orthodox in terms of the most politically correct or woke opinion, but it doesn't even really matter where the opinion comes from. The idea is that universities have always traditionally been places where you can go out on a limb and express some crazy notion, and then the correct way to shut that down is to come up with a better argument, a better idea, and hash it out, uh, not shout each other down and deplatform people and say they can't talk and that certain ideas are sort of prejudged to be wrong before we even have that conversation. And there is too much of that going on on campuses all over over the Anglophone world. Uh, Alan Davison is trying to push back against that and is trying to foster an environment of genuine free speech and independent thought at the University of Technology. Sydney, it's exciting that I can be one small part of that collaboration. And if you're finding this show through UTS, then I hope you enjoy all our other episodes because one person who has a similar mission to Alan Davison is today's guest, Peter, P- Peter Bogosian, who was on a previous episode of Permission to Think here on Uncomfortable Conversations. He's back because he's in Australia, uh, courtesy of uh, the University of Technology, Sydney, and I was excited to sit down with him in the flesh and actually meet him one-on-one. Peter is a philosopher. He was an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University before he resigned at the end of 2021, saying that the university had become a social justice factory, that he faced harassment and retaliation for trying to have reasoned, rational conversations about some of these social justice issues. Um, He said the university creates a culture where students are afraid to speak openly and honestly, sounds familiar, of training students to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues and of driving intolerance of divergent beliefs and opinions. Um, Peter now goes around trying to essentially help lay people think about things with the same rigor as a professional philosopher, not to fall into epistemic traps and to be as generous as possible to other people's opinions. For that, he is widely loathed and (laughs) denounced. (laughs) He always has been, even when he got his start. I mean, he first came to, to sort of public attention because he was involved in what's called the grievance studies affair. He is friends with James Lindsay, who is a former uh, a guest on this show. Uh, you may have heard my attempt to uh, find some common ground uh, with young Mr. James, and uh, we discussed James a little bit in this uh, in this episode because I think Peter feels that I've wrongly uh, characterised James. But uh, James Lindsay and uh, the British academic Helen Pluckrose joined Peter Bogosian in writing a, a, a bunch of intentionally preposterous academic papers around sort of social justice issues and submitting them to peer-reviewed publications about things like gender studies and getting them accepted, thereby apparently showing that gender studies publications will basically publish any word salad of woke nonsense if you just make it sound worthy enough, even if it makes absolutely no sense. And these things were written intentionally to make no sense. That got that trio a lot of flack and created a lot of enemies and that pool of people have only continued to pillory peter in the years since nonetheless i hope you enjoy this reflection between me and the one and only peter bogosian for more on all the good things that uts is doing look up permission to think and you can find previous episodes enjoy make me feel important says uh unimportant unimportant (laughs) desperately looking for ways to remain relevant i mean being a white cisgender straight male in 2023 am i right peter bogosian you certainly are what's going on with the kids these days and all their genders and their hair welcome to australia thank you very much i love it here what are you doing here 
I have an appointment with UTS and I was a guest of the Ramsey Center where I gave a talk and I'm enjoying the warm weather and the friendly people and the absolutely terrific food. I love it here. What's the best part about Australian food? Uh, the best part, Asian food, uh, it's a little different. Uh, the authenticity of the food is fantastic. I'll tell you the worst part, even though you didn't, didn't ask me that. Yeah, okay. it, it's a very, right. it's a very, okay, I can take it. I'm a big boy. Okay. It's, it, I could have made a really inappropriate joke about that, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's very odd to me that, uh, there's a extra cost for iced coffee. Yes. Also, no free refills of anything. I've that was no, a shock I've, to my system I've, when I've I came back that. after having been in New York for a dozen years where I lived when I, in the first half of my... I noticed that. And yeah, I mean, why are they charging me for more soft drink? You know, like soft drink is nothing. It's just syrup with fizzy drinks in it if it's coming out of a tap. Don't make me... Cool. If, like at a pub, if I go back to the bar and get a fill up of Diet Coke, then they charge me a whole new $3.20. It's interesting. We went to that... Uh, what's that place called? Spice Alley or yeah, Spice Alley, just so, across the road from UTS. God, that place is great. Like truly great. A but, bunch of different little restaurants, yeah, and well, Hawker stores and things. One of the things that I noticed there is, so I literally just moved out of Portland, Oregon, and when I was in Spice Alley, there was a restaurant that was shared by another a, a bunch of other restaurants, and I wanted to. You you don't call them bathrooms here. What do you call them? Toilets you can call them a toilet. Toilet, yeah. So I, I I went, and there was no code on the door. Like literally anybody could just walk in. But imagine that. Uh, my, imagine was, a public toilet. I, <laughs> <in the> public. <laughs> <laughs> what is this communism? What, was, what, what, what is it? Paging Brezhnev. Brezhnev. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. That you, anyone can use a public toilet. Why in America it would just, just be? Well, in Portland, you could never. I mean, you could literally never have that. Oh, what and, would happen? <clears throat> Well, homeless people would camp out in there. People would die of overdoses in there. People would defecate on the floor. They'd break the toilets. They'd they'd destroy the whole place. Right. So that's one of the things I I do is when I go around the world. This is going to sound really weird. This is one of the things that people will meme out as like super yeah, creepy. Okay, okay. Is I when I I walk into when I give lectures in high schools. One of the first things I do is I use the restroom and I take a video of the boys' room and I send it to my son. Oh. Yeah, because I, I tell him that this is how... Does he appreciate this? He does. Habit? I tell him that the, it's kind of an inside joke. This is how civilized people use the restroom. <laughs> they don't defecate on the floor. They don't rip the <laughs> stalls off. They don't smash the toilets up. They don't throw M80s, which are just these explosives down. Right. Attempt to destroy the plumbing. Ours is an empire in decline. Yeah, I've heard that. I've yeah, heard it's, that. it's certainly worse in some places. So I the local grocery store when I used to live in Portland was a Safeway. And... I am not kidding you when I tell this. I do, used to do my, all my shopping there at night. 50%, half the time that I was in the grocery store, and admittedly I'm a slow shopper, but half the time that I was there, there was some kind of people running out with stealing things, something. Once I had to also use the restroom, which has a code on it, and I went to the front door, and I asked the person staffing the door, well, excuse me, can you please tell me the code? And they said, all the restrooms are closed. And I said, why? And she said, someone died from an overdose oh. there. Have they not removed the body? I, mean, I, I don't know. I, can't I, they? Surely I it's been cleaned up by I, then. I didn't ask. I didn't yeah, ask. We haven't bothered to move the body. Now it is just a mortuary. We just shuffle the additional bodies right. in there. So, uh, so it, give it, nobody the code. It is like a the the frog in the boiling water. I mean, you know what you need, Peter Bogosian, is adult diapers so that you don't ever have to use uh, a restroom while you're out. Yeah, I, I won't take notes on that. That is free I won't advice. Put that in my Amazon order. Free advice from me to you. Uh, <laughs> you're just using public restrooms too much. I don't know the last time I right. used a public restroom. All I don't U.S. Use citizens. Them. I would not do that. I, I haven't even been to the public restroom at Spice Alley. I wouldn't even know if it had a code oh, on well, it. Well, let me say. So, I, I, one of the places that I've been eating, I, I just the sushi here is fantastic. Mm. Like I'm a huge sushi fan. The salmon is fresh. It's well, right here on the South Pacific. The, the the it's lapping shores horrific. of the South Pacific. And, and it's priced about half of what it would be in the U.S. I just love it. I'm a, I, in fact, I eat the same thing virtually every day for lunch. And I have to say, using the restroom 
in that bathroom. Why are you is using del- so well, many I have, restrooms? I have to pee. What's going I have, on? I have to pee. But do you have problems down there? No, no. Like Why I, no, I to- walk in and and the whole, the, you know, there's no, there's no feces on the floor. There's no, no graffiti on the wall. That's right. It's just a wonderful experience. This is a civilized land. A civilized island. Yeah. Correct. And land. C- correct. It's both. It's a land. I'll, I'll, I'll give it. I'll. I'll. I'll give it to you. Don't it's an island. Play the self importance, but no. I. I'm just found like you know. There's no. There's no tent camping. I just find it to be but, a so remarkable what do you, to, experience. But how do you diagnose that problem? Because the, I mean, the left would say, well, the people aren't injecting in the Spice Alley restroom because there's a free injecting room in mm. Sydney, which was very controversial and mm. conservatives didn't want, but about 30 years ago it passed and anyone who wants to, to shoot up can go in a legal supervised place where they get clean needles and they can shoot up and they can pass out and it's safe and it's supervised. Right. Uh, and, you know, we don't have people who are throwing the bomb, these little M80 bombs or whatever it is because we have a, an adequate welfare system which keeps people... Uh, which gives people a leg up and gives them opportunities and enables them to get jobs and hopefully aspire towards the middle class and not get entrenched in cycles of poverty like they do in America. And then the conservative will say the reverse, that I mean, the, the reason why is because in the in Portland, the left has just gone crazy and has made no serious attempt at cleaning up uh, you know, homelessness or addressing the root causes of things like mental health issues and so on and yeah. panders to bleeding heart social justice activists who yep. will and tolerate any level of kind of uh, decline and decay in the name of humanity, yeah, and which y- is true. Y- Johan Hari has written some fantastic stuff about that. Michael Schellenberger has written some great stuff about that in San Francisco. And I think we need to get away from this idea of the Republican, the conservative, the left wing, the right wing, and we need to look at evidence and evidence-based policies. And there's just simply no question about it that... Since the since the George Floyd incident, we see a dramatic increase in the number of deaths in Portland. The death rate is over three hundred percent. There's a wonderful little book about that. Uh, Matt Thornton's The Gift of Violence. He talks about the criminogenic factors and what's happened since the the George Floyd incident. So we we have problems. We're so people are talking about a national divorce, which is basically a separation of the country. We're not talking across divides. We're fighting with each other against a whole about things that are frankly rather ridiculous, as opposed to deferring to the evidence. We have authoritarian versus non-authoritarian, which I think those are more helpful. Uh, it's more helpful access to look at the problem. But I would definitely not pin it on liberals or conservatives. Or I, I think a more nuanced, evidence-based look at the problem is, is the way to deal with it. But I will say, coming here and and going, for example, to Hungary, it is absolutely striking. I mean, it's literally the first thing you know coming from, you notice coming from Portland, Oregon, is that there's no tent camping. It's just the first thing you would know. It'd be impossible coming from Portland to not notice that. Right, right. And where do you live now? I can't say for security reasons. What city, generally? You can't say that even? No, I can't say that. Have you moved to Austin? I've moved out of Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Because I only wanted to know not to pry, but just to see what the difference is between Portland and that city. In other words, is this a United States-wide problem or was this something particular to Portland? No, I'm glad you you mentioned that. No, I I do think, or maybe I should say I will admit that that it's a bubble and it's certainly worse in Portland than it is other places. And my buddy Reed, who's here, lives in uh, um, Florida and the problem is nowhere near as pronounced as that. Right. So it is Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego. It's a and to deny the problem to say that it doesn't exist as opposed as opposed to turning the to really giving thoughtful consideration about vulnerable people and what is the best evidence, best available evidence to help them and help the society in which they live. We're not really, we're not ready. That's just add that to the list of things we're not ready to have an honest conversation about. <laughs> uh, well, that's why we're here to have uncomfortable conversations. It's interesting that you say that there's a, that, that axis of authoritarian versus uh, anti-authoritarian is more a more interesting one than left versus right. And then in the next breath, you said, uh, when you come to a place like Australia or Hungary, and I was like, well, hang on a second. Uh, Australia is still deeply committed to smaller liberal ideals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hungary is a quasi-authoritarian country at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, would, I would disagree 
Let's explore I, I would that definitely, then. I would definitely disagree with that. So it, it's interesting. So, so tell me what, so tell me why you're focusing on Hungary. Well, because you just mentioned it, and it's the outlier in Western Europe as being a country whose leader has been systematically dismantling freedom of the press, installing friends in the judiciary, making it harder for independent journalists to do their job, and articulating a very robust vision of what the executive state should be able to do. So that's not accorded with my experience whatsoever. And I spent four months there last year, and I found it to be one of the most interesting places I have ever been. I, I mean, the country is fascinating. It's both beautiful, it's culturally complex, but that doesn't mean that its leader is uh, an anti-authoritarian. No, you know, you know who? Well, I, I would take I would take issue with that, but you know, I think you should have Balaj Orban on your show to have a, a, a serious, he's a very thoughtful, he, he wrote the... Is he related to the president? No, he's actually not related, but he's kind of Orban's right-hand man. He's become a friend of mine, and we've had honest, thoughtful conversations. I'd love it. That would be fantastic. Right, Can than, you tee I'm, that up? A hundred percent. I'm be more great. than happy to make that connection to you, and you you can ask him. But I will say, when I went there, if, if you gave me a wand to wave and gave you my dream job, this would be it. I could go all around the country and I could talk about literally anything I wanted to. And that's exactly what I did. And I, and in fact, think about this. He, imagine this happening. Well, maybe you, it's more difficult for you from, because you're from Australia, but imagine this happening in a U.S. context. He put me in, in touch with, and he said, listen, we want you to meet critics of Orban. We want you to talk to them and we want you to make your mind up yourself. And he arranged, he actually arranged meetings with people like Peter Krekko and I can't, Martin, I can't, can't Hungarian is That you could make impossible. up a name. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, know it's anyway. Who are the most prominent dissidents of <laughs> Orban? I, I don't know. Victor Blobablanco. But it's interesting that, that people will pick on Hungary, for example, or when I go on a show, but they won't, they won't pick on Singapore. Right, which is a complete nightmare. Now you've had people on your show, like David Martin Jones, uh, who's a national uh, uh, lecturer at the National University of Singapore, um, and no, nothing came up about Singapore or the death penalty or the dictatorial status of you know criticism of the judiciary or lack of free speech, and so I do think that there is a particular animus, and I'm not necessarily accusing well, you of this. Well, feel free. No, go ahead and you can. I mean, but the but the difference there is that Singapore, no one has ever had any illusions that Singapore is a democracy. I mean, Singapore has been Singapore and has been just as authoritarian a country as it is today yeah. since, it's, you know, since it's in post-colonial inception. So I, I think it just it's just taken as a given. <laughs> you know, what, what, what would be the point but, in but me talking is... to someone who works in China and me talk, well, actually, in the case of China, it would be worthwhile because China is changing. But like, you know, taking someone from a country that we all understand is autocratic and like needling them about the autocracy of that country. What's interesting about Hungary is that mm. you've got a a country that is within the European Union is supposedly abiding by all of the smaller liberal democratic principles that we believe in uh, and is nonetheless engaging in a kind of a bombastic, swaggering, some would say chauvinistic, sort of nationalistic... Uh, See, I don't think that's what it is. I, posture. I, I think that that is... I mean, it's is... enough that, like, Germany and France are, have held yeah, you know, high-level talks about right. whether they should be booted out of the EU. That will never happen. No, I, at least I don't think that will ever happen. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't, think, I don't think that's why. I think to understand Hungary, it's not, and Orban, it's not a conservative in a sense. It's a, it's a traditional. And... The criticisms that I hear of Hungary are just completely false. For example, you know, you you would you would think from the rhetoric about Hungary that there'd be Nazis goose stepping up and down the streets, whereas where I live, there well, were, if you there would were two think synagogues, that, then, there no, were two synagogues uh, right, right in the. But who would think? Well, that? that's what I hear the criticism all the time that that you know. When, uh, well, I know Orban personally. I know that he has Jewish friends. I know that the synagogues are active. I know that. You know, they had a Holocaust memorial. I just think that there's a lot of misunderstanding. And rather than get it from me, who's an outsider, why don't you actually have a conversation with somebody in the government who can you can talk to intelligently? Well, about I've had those many conditions. conversations. Well, the, the the simple answer to that would be that I'm not going to know when they're bullshitting me as well as someone who studies Hungary will. So it's probably better yeah. for me to talk to international experts who understand. Well, Hungary. that's not me. 
No, that, no. that's true. Let's no, move no. on then. Uh, I liked a tweet that you tweeted earlier today. It says, we're in the very early stages of epic and unprecedented gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? Uh, well, in, in the uh, two photos there, it was no, normally people, I don't pay any attention to them <laughs> whatsoever, but they, they do have a wildly popular... In fact, I think one of your episodes I listened to, one of your guests claimed the the, the journalist was about Dave Rubin, and I think that he said in that episode that the Young Turks was the most had the most the most it's, popular. It's wildly show. popular. I think it might be. Yeah, if it's not right now, then it certainly has been the most popular yeah, so, YouTube news show. It's a left wing, correct? An extremely left wing news, news show. Yeah, even before it was woke, it was just very left in terms of economic, sort of Bernie Sanders style leftism. Uh, and they used to have me on their show occasionally. They were no more. I bet no more. Uh, I, I look. It's it's a bizarre thing. I mean, they were also. There are particular individuals there who are not Jenk or Anna, who who are the people who you who you retweeted, who were very uh, just condescending and yeah. I, I to specifically me. left out their Twitter handles because I didn't want them to get right. bombed. Right? Yeah, that's right, not right. what this is about. So to answer your question directly, some of this, and f- I mean, you'd have to break it down into individual propositions in in the suite of woke beliefs, if you will. Some of this stuff is so fucking insane. It's just so crazy that these positions, not only are they not sustainable, anybody who's given serious consideration to these, you know, transitioning women in men's prisons, a lot of the trans issues, and and you've spoken about that on your show as well. The consequence of this must be, and I've said this for years, People are not going to say, oh, well, you know, we, we thought this, but we were hoodwinked by the ideology. We just were all bamboozled. We were caught in some kind of a, a deranged cultural moment. No, the consequence of this will be, I never believe that. I predicted that from day one. And I think we're now at the beginning of seeing this epic, un, truly, genuinely unprecedented gaslighting. Oh, I see what you're saying. I know. And a ga- just to find a gaslighting for people who aren't as, in, as online as we are. Or to total denial. Like... Denial of something that's literally right in front of you. I never believe that. Even 50 tweets later, 100 videos, no, I never believe that. Right, right. And there's a lot of this that goes on in the sense that, you know, I'll... I'll make a criticism. Let's just to just to run with the transgender angle since you just raised it. I'll, I will say I was in a long uh, text message argument over the weekend with a good friend of mine who's one of the most prominent... Uh, LGBTQIA plus activists in Australia, and he was he was listening back to my episode about J.K. Rowling. Uh, oh yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was saying like your outrage outrages me. I'm so infuriated at you, Josh, because I don't all of the things that you're saying that we do we don't do. Like who is who are these people who can't have open conversations about this? It's on it's all over the place. Look at Fox News. Look at Sky News After Dark in Australia. Look at the Murdoch Press. Like there's look at the parliamentarians who are and look at the anti-trans bills and everything like. This is in the culture at the moment. This is not something that you can't say. And I was trying to sort of be a bit more nuanced and go, like, I don't want those outlets to be the ones who are speaking on my behalf or on behalf of anybody who questions the extremes of uh, of transgender ideology at the moment. I want us to be able to have a compassion and a nuanced com- conversation that those outlets are, are not doing. And his response was... The only time that I hear people saying the things that you claim they're saying is when people like you, Josh, are saying that they're saying them. I never actually hear people on the in the transgender activist community saying the things that you claim that they do. So then it becomes almost a factual question about who's gaslighting who, right? Like, I would have yeah. to go back yeah. and so, find documentary evidence of every time. Yeah, hold on. Let, yeah. Me, let, me, let me pause you. So... As a, as a conversational strategy, I'd like to make a suggestion. Please. So instead of going back and finding the evidence, I would first say to him, what evidence could I present you with 
that would cause you to change your mind about that. Mm. And then listen to what he says and only then find the evidence. Because if you just find the evidence first, he'll say that that's not enough evidence. Right. That's insufficient evidence. Right. So ask to his satisfaction, you know, what sources would you accept? What kind of figures? So get as much detail and granularity on that as you can mm. and then present that evidence and say, but you know, in tandem with that, are you willing to change your mind about this? Like, is, is this something that if you were presented evidence to your satisfaction, you would change your mind? Mm. Only then would I furnish the evidence. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting because, yes, what would constitute evidence that there is a chilling effect on the conversation around some of these controversial issues? I mean, to, for some people... I don't think there is enough evidence. I don't think there will ever be enough evidence okay, well because then, they'll just say. Then you need to get you need to have them say that to you, right? Well, but they won't. I mean, they'll say. I guess, yeah, it's interesting. It would be interesting to hear what they say. I think they would rule out of bounds uh, a Twitter pylon or people being, uh, you know, having yeah. their shows cancelled. But or see, we're doing like it again. Let's not do that. Let's not say what they would say. Let's actually ask them. Yeah, well, they're not here. Well, I know, but that's that's what you would do because even us saying what they would say, they would say that's a mischaracterization of what they would say. Right. So you have to ask people who believe. That's one of the, the things. Of, I have a, a YouTube show I did with a buddy of mine on the ideological capture of, of NPR. And one of the things that I noticed from listening to countless hours of that is when they want to, they are woke uh, far-left news station, or at the very least a woke left news station, and... When they want to articulate a position of someone on the right or of a, a green or a libertarian or what have you, they always find someone on the left and ask them, well, what do these people think? And that, so I want to make sure that we're not those people. Right. I'm just suggesting a strategy for yes. how to deal with that. Now, yeah. if they say to you, well, there is no evidence, I, I would be very surprised if they, they said that. They won't say that. Okay. They won't say that. Nobody, yeah. would, nobody would say that. But yeah, yeah. I, I just fear that there would be shifting goalposts. Well, yeah, well, that's why you have to uh, articulate what the goalposts are beforehand by yeah. asking them what the evidence would be. What's your ev what is your evidence for uh, the existence? Let's suppose that they turned the tables and said, all right, well, what evidence do you, know, do you want to marshal for the claim that there is a chilling effect on, on speech at the moment? So I, I'm sure you, you were told to never ask, answer a question with a question. I would ask the question, well, what would you consider to be good evidence? So I think a lot of times these conversations devolve into that's evidence, yes, it is, no, it isn't. And I think it's really important to clarify what the evidence would look like before any evidence was presented. I think that's one of the main mistakes in, mm. in conversations. And I did a an event with Reed at UTS recently, and one of the first things we do when we put people on a Likert scale on lines from strongly agree agree, slightly agree, neutral with the rest on the disagree. And one of the first orders of business is to ask them to clarify the terms. And when we did this recently, people meant completely different. We had the claim, uh, is there a God? And people had completely different definitions of God. So they were talking past each other. It wasn't that the beliefs were incommensurable, they could have been, but that they were talking past each other. And mm. so I think it's really important in these conversations to clarify, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what's evidence look like? To lay the ground, the foundations, because it's just conversations are so toxic mm. and people simply aren't listening to each other and they're accusing each other of horrible things. So I think setting that groundwork is extremely important. So that's how I'd have the conversation. That's interesting. I mean, and there's so much talking past each other at the moment. It's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this show that I'm trying to remedy and try to actually butt heads. Or, I mean, even if I agree with someone, at least agree with each other in a way that is that is that has a common framework and has a com have common common ground ground rules, right? Right. So that's the philosopher Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, what he says. It's really important. It's you don't communicate to persuade. It's mutual understanding. So you have a belief. I have a belief. I think your belief is way out of bounds, but I understand why you believe it. So mm. I know what the belief is. I know your claim. I know your epistemology, how you came to the belief. I got it. Only then are you situated... So, so if you look at the conversations for mutual understanding, you're then situated to act either democratically if it's with a large number of people or to proceed productively. But if you don't do that, that's how you ruin friendships. Right. That's how you corrode 
establishments. And how you destroy a culture. Correct. And, and a policy and a demos because nobody understands what everybody else is saying. I mean, this is one of the great liabilities and fears of not having a vibrant town square where everybody can sort of say oh. their stupid opinions freely, right? Because otherwise you don't even know why you believe what you believe. You become worse at, uh, at articulating the beliefs of your opponents. It's tricky. So he, here in Sydney, there is Speaker's Corner, which is next to the art machine museum. Which yeah, is, I saw a photo of you on social out there. Oh, oh, you follow me social. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was an amazing experience. Reed and I went there and the first thought I had beside, you know, this, I was kind of excited to be there. This is cool. The first thought I had was you could never do this in Portland, Oregon. You could simply never do that in Portland, Oregon. Meaning you couldn't have people randomly standing up and spouting no. whatever they believe. Antifa would be there. They'd be destroying the place. They'd be saying the Nazis everywhere. Then that would bring in elements on the other side. It would be, the police would have to be come, but the police would be funded. You, you could just, it would be defaced. Like it's a, it's a symbol of the health of the democracy. You simply, but you know what? I would love to be proven wrong. People would, I bet you that they would bring in a, a, a truck with a chain to just to, to rip the thing out of the ground. I just don't see that in Portland, Oregon. Now in Florida, that might be a different case. Mm. So I, I do think that if we want to solve this problem of incivility, of hostility, I think that we need more listening. I think we need more clarifying up front what people mean by things. I think we need more of an honest conversation about what what would it take you to change your mind? What evidence would you need? And when you have those things, then you can proceed civilly with the conversation. And if you don't have those things, if somebody is unwilling to furnish them, that doesn't mean that you should be an asshole to them. Right. right? So you want to model the behavior that you want to see. If you don't want someone to be a dick to you, then don't be a dick to them. Yeah, yeah. So that calls for more listening. You know, at the event that we did recently at UTS, there was... First of all, people bought up the seats. They purchased the seats so nobody else could come and see the event. Wait, really? Oh yeah, yeah. That happens. That happened my Demore event. That happens frequently at the people events. who hate you. Yeah, buy it, buy it out. Yeah, so well, that no one else can come and see. Yeah, it's see. well, they, they're free. They're it's free oh, and it's free and open to the public. Yeah, right. So I think you can get around that by just charging a dollar. But then when you charge a dollar, you know, someone said, "Well, why aren't there more homeless people here?" Well, I mean, the event is free and open to the but public. But also, if someone really hates you, they can probably drop 50 bucks on, you know, taking up 50 seats. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so, so yeah, so they bought out the seats. But You're kidding me. I no. mean, what infants, no. seriously, yeah. get and it was And it was to teach people how to speak across divides. To teach people how to have civil conversations, and the and their gripe. So these would be what you would call sort of woke type progressives, right? And 100%. and their gripe with you is well, what's your most generous? Here's, here's well, this is a good so challenge, that, right? Well, you know, that, can you articulate say. your opponent's point of view in the most generous possible way? Yeah. So my first thing I'd like to say is I'd like to ask them and have them, but they don't believe in dialogue, discourse, or conversation. So that's out. I think that they would think I. See my most generous interpretation that I am using exit structures of power to uphold power. I'm using language, university structures, my situatedness as a white, cis, heterosexual male to maintain my privilege and the dominant discourse in society. And this is just window dressing that does not ex address the actual problem but keep systemic inequalities being perpetuated because people think that something is being done. But the very act of discourse itself is a form of epistemic violence. I think that would be the most charitable That's thing pretty one good. could say. And are there specific things that you believe that they would point to as evidence of this? Again, I'm extremely hesitant to say what, any, what other people believe. I'd much rather have them comment. But if you're asking what I think it would be... Um, I think some things, well, I'll just throw out some. I don't believe, unless you've had bottom surgery that you and you're convicted of a crime and you were born a, a male, you should go into a woman's prison. I do believe that there should be women's only spaces, rape crisis centers, for example, sporting events, for example. I think that could be construed as a form of transphobia. I think challenging what are now dominant not narratives 
challenging the idea that one needs to develop a critical consciousness to understand how racism and structural inequalities are embedded in the system. I think challenging that worldview itself would be seen as inherently problematic and it has to be silenced in order for there to be, they wouldn't use the word human flourishing, but this is, again, you've asked me to be a hermeneutic of charity, the most charitable I could be, in order to provide the flourishing for people whose ancestors suffer from historical oppression and whose embedded within the power structure are still keeping these people from um, achieving parity with white cis heterosexual men. It's very good. It's very impressive. What what is? It's impressive your ability to be that generous, like to be that uh, self aware. Oh well, for a start. Well, well, thanks. I and yeah, and and to not put as put spin on. I like I didn't detect much spin there on in terms of your you you could throw you could add little things in to throw them under the bus a bit, and I was yeah, well, listening out for those things yeah, and I didn't hear them. Well, if I'm wrong, I would want to know that I'm wrong. But the only way that I would be wrong is not talking to you because you and I pretty much have. I mean, it, when you fine tune those beliefs, they may be may dif- be different at a level. Yeah, of we'd have some different we'd have some differences, but we but we don't differ on the fundamental principle right. that the only way for a civilization to survive and flourish is for people to talk to each other in yeah. in uns- self censored ways and, yeah, and, I, and use I reason and rationality as the guiding principle. The, the, I couldn't I couldn't possibly agree more. And I think the be- the best book, and this is a quite a statement, is your former guest and our my friend Tim Urban came on your show. Oh, I love Tim. Loved him. I mean, one of the best people, amazing, and best minds. Amazing human. Amazing yeah. human. Everybody should read his work. Yeah, and listen to the two. Uh, What's there are problem? two. Epi- he's he's one of the few people who's been on the show two twice. Well, you're now. Oh, I've been you're on now the one show. of the. Wow, you're, now, so what, you're now in the in the illustrious pantheon wow. of is double it, guests. Is it, is it? Am I a friend of the show? You're a friend of the show now, officially. I'll give you a little key to like a key to the city. Wow, I, that won't help me because I still can't get yeah. in here. There are like four security doors <laughs> that I have to get in to come into the building. <laughs> now, one of the other things that you said before we started was that you wanted to tease out some areas of disagreement, which is fantastic uh, by, by me, so that when this doesn't just become a mutual jerk-off session. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you flagged James Lindsay, who, with whom you wrote a book and who's a friend of yours yeah. and, and a previous guest on this show as being one possible area. <laughs> I mean, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't want to talk too much about a guy not in his absence, but what bothered you about my remarks about James. Well, full disclosure, James is a very, very close friend. Of, Jim is a very, very close friend of mine. He's a collaborator. He I'll is, call him Mr. Lindsay. He, he is, uh, <laughs> he's a, he, he's in a remarkable person to work with because you could literally say anything to him and he does not take it personally. So he really, truly only wants to create the best stuff. And we had, we have had a genuinely extraordinary collaborative partnership across peer-reviewed things, actual peer-reviewed, popular pieces, etc. So I, I I've so th- so th- so this is bothering me and I'll I'll tell you it's bothering Please. me. Please. Yeah. So you've mentioned a, a few times on the show in a few different episodes, so it wasn't just a one-off that you think Jim is a conspiracy theorist. Now, to your favor, you have had Jim on your show to talk to him directly about this. So already this puts this puts you in another category. Now he was telling me that one of the episodes you did there was some kind of recording uh, problem. It was so it was such a shame. It was fantastic. The first time I spoke to him was in I think February of twenty twenty two. And we he didn't know me from a bar of soap and I didn't know much about him. And yeah. we just had this great experience of kind of sniffing each other's butts like dogs at the park, not oh, knowing what to make of each that. other. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we went for two hours, I think. Yeah. And then uh when we went to upload his side of the conversation, his audio file was ninety seconds long. Yeah, he told me there was a mistake. He said, and he, he said, went back know, this, into his this, system, this, and he tried to. He's the only person with whom that's happened. So yeah, he told know, me that. He told me it's a one, like an amazing. It was conversation. such a shame, and there was no yeah. point. And we were both like, you know, we're not even going to reschedule this because what's the point in trying to recapture lightning in a bottle? Right. And then right. we came back like nine months later, and we had the conversation. And I heard that conversation. Here, but right. needless to say, it's less. There's less sparkle, but I also think he'd changed. And I do, th- I wouldn't have characterized him as a conspiracy theorist during the first conversation, but after hanging up on him the second time, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would use that term. Okay. So I, I'm going to, instead of pick issue with that, I'm going to make some suggestions, which I hope you find productive. Please. 
So I think instead of labeling someone as a conspiracy theorist, it might be helpful to say, Jim said this in this venue. Well, I think I this, do. I, mean, I, don't, I don't go around banding about that. Well, you, 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 you said that term. So I'm, so then I was like, uh, put on the back okay, foot but, and I was like, hang on, do I actually, do, would I want to Well, you it? have in some of your episodes that I've listened to. With the, the, well, maybe in the context where I'm not going to go off on a 15-minute side tangent about precisely what I mean, but I think I've been fairly generous with James about... I mean, the main the main moment that I had a comment that went viral about James was when Sam Harris was on my show and we were talking about... I heard that I as think, well. I mean, I, I think I said that I James... I listened to your podcast. This is great. I, I like, like your it. podcast. I think I, I think I said that James is a genius. He is a genius. Uh, which I absolutely believe. He is a genius. And then I think we were talking about... Uh, whether or not uh, the de- and actually he did what you're just saying, which is like what would constitute proof, like yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think it was something uh, along the lines of if the New South Wales Department of Education uh, started introducing, uh, for example, uh, policies in public schools that aligned with something that the United Nations UNESCO had uh, developed, that would be evidence for his belief yeah, that there is what I would call a conspiracy of yeah, and I think kind of world government types right, so who I want th- to indoctrinate youth. Right. I would regard that as being evidence that uh, educators talk to each other among public policy yeah, forums so, all the time. So that would be my, my suggestion for... Because we don't want to contribute to this problem, right? We don't no. want to contribute to... So, so we want to position ourselves, and and I know because I've spoken to you and we've spoken, we want to make sure that we don't contribute to the problem. And one way to do that is to say, okay, this would be evidence if this person said this, it's true. And you know, the other thing, of course, is in what time frame. So we, we've got to wait. But I, I, I have heard you mention Jim a few times on the show... And I will say it, it did bother me because I did feel that it was unfair. Is there more to say on this issue? Because no. that's not a very interesting disagreement, Peter. I no. mean, that's no. just like, well, I, I have a friend no, it's and bothered I like me. him. And well, no, he you is said my, a mean he, thing about him. And so well, I thought apart, it was apart, apart from it being interesting, it did bother me. And I did want to get it off my chest. And I do want to tell well, you, there you, you, you can delete the whole, you can delete that no, whole piece No, I mean, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So I was trying to think of what other disagreements we might have, I'm not really sure what they would be. Because we, on the broad issues, we certainly feel the same about liberty, freedom of speech, democracy, people, you know, pro-trans in that people can kind of live any kind of life they want without harassment. They should be free to assemble with who they want to so let me just well then let me just try to milk the most out of this before we move on because there are other things that i want to pick your brain on which you're more knowledgeable than i am on like academia and the state of uh, the, of institutions that i want to i want to hear your thoughts on but uh is there a, so what's the most useful way if you see a phenomenon happen right such as very smart people going through a period of immense global trauma and coming out the other side with beliefs that you regard as being unjustified by the evidence. Is it worth having a term to characterize that phenomenon? Well, if, if, if that's a roundabout way of asking me if it's conspiracy theory, no. And the reason is that belief isn't binary, right? There are degrees of freedom, if you will, of belief, and there are confidences. And actually that's one of the things we do. And we, we, when Reed and I go around, we help people calibrate the confidence in their belief to the reason and evidence they have for that belief. So in an ideal situation, I'm sure you'd agree, we would have a conversation with them. We would ask them how confident they are. If they could put it on a scale, that would be even better. But just because you don't see the reasons for why Jim or Vivek Ramaswamy or what have you would look at ESG or would look at social emotional learning or look at any of these other problems, that doesn't mean that they don't exist maybe they have access to a vein of information that you don't have access to of course yeah but this is but but the same could be said of Majid Nawaz or Brett Weinstein or a whole bunch of characters who who to me form an interesting pattern even though each of them has very different reasons for believing their particular brand Mm. of whatever it is that they believe like I I think that many rational people would regard their inferences as being over the top and yet those inferences are stemming from very different uh, sets of data and reaching very different sets of conclusions, sometimes in completely unrelated fields, uh, biology in one case, uh, political you know, economy in another case, 
education in another case, right. uh, gender theory in another case, or whatever right. it might be. But if you see a trend of like all of a sudden a world, the world goes into a pressure cooker with COVID, something's happening with social media, and then things are starting to pop and break and the stresses are seem to be coming out in ways that are unexpected, uh, then that is, that is a phenomenon that I'm trying to put my finger on right. when I clumsily use a messy term like conspiracy theorist. Maybe or, or, it's better or, to say someone who's, who has become uh, uh, perhaps unjustifiably interested in a particular hypothesis. Okay, I was... I was with you right up until the end. That the end threw me. So, if the ideas, for example, to use a turn of phrase you've used on your show, the IDW, if people who were broadly in this category, and I never considered myself in that category, if people were broadly in this category had certain beliefs or beliefs that came off the rails, I think it's very legitimate to ask what happened. And I don't think you think that about Eric. Uh, again, I mean, coming back to what you were saying about degrees, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's, I think Eric's a 5 percenter. <laughs> well, Lindsay, but, Lindsay for you would be a paradigmatic example. Of that. Oh, no, I don't think he's by any means the worst. Not at all. Oh, okay. uh, not at all. No. Majid no. is... Uh, that would be getting there. That would be getting okay. up there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, reform. Uh, hang on, <laughs> Reed. Reed is just intervening here. Uh, reforming. What is this? Uh, what is this? A suggest? A prompt? Uh, reforming. Oh, reforming versus abandoning legacy uh, institutions. That's a, ah, that's a good I, I need a read. I, need I a know, read in right? My life. I need I know. a person. Reed's awesome. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Totally. Insistent to uh, to jog my mind about interesting areas of uh, of disagreement. Um, yeah. Okay. That's interesting, isn't it? So you've got. Reed, why don't you come come up to a mic, Reed? Come here, come here. Why, awesome. why are we talking about you without you being there? Hang on, let me turn. Yeah, that's a good question. Let me turn on your your microphone. Uh, we should be able to hear you there. Uh, Tell us who you are, Reed. Reed. Reed is awesome. Hello, yes, Reed. Nice wonder here. Hmm. Go for it, Reed. the The floor is yours. Yeah, I'm president of Street Epistemology International. Street Epistemology International. What's yeah, Street Epistemology yes. International? Street Epistemology coined from Peter's first book. It's the way of having conversation we like to have with people that's civil and helps people reflect on the quality of their reasoning. And yeah, I've been working with Peter since last summer on his videos that he's doing for his YouTube channel. And we're now doing a bunch of Spectrum Street Epistemology videos around the world. We go around the world. We're just in Puerto Rico, Florida. We had a tour in the US. We're probably going to go to the UK after this. We're in Australia. We're doing some here. Fantastic. And uh, what was your uh, what was your suggestion there, Reed? Yeah, my suggestion was uh, potentially talking about uh, reforming or abandoning like legacy educational institutions. Reforming or abandoning? You mean? I mean, would be there be a? Is anyone proposing that we would abandon universities? Hmm. I'm, I might know someone. Like, ah, good. <laughs> Up goes Peter Bogosian's hand. All right, thank you, Reed. Back in the corner. Sure. Back in the box, <laughs> Reed. I'm, I'm going back. Get back in the box, Reed. Hey, Reed, think of some more things. Reed. So, I mean, I do think it's good that that even jokingly that we are thinking about some disagreements that we have. So, I I do believe. In fact, I was just in a meeting today where I talked about this. So let me just. Uh, a university is paying for you to come out here to argue for the abolition of universities. Let let, let me be cr crystal clear about something. I'm not getting paid for this. I do this through my nonprofit. Okay. I'm not okay. getting paid for this. But did you pay for the airfare? No. Okay. No. No. It's they they pay for my airfare and all right. uh, I do not get paid for this. I, all of our events that we do, they're free and open to the public. We do them on sidewalks. I've done my work in the prisons. I literally make these tools accessible. Anybody can use them. So this is not, you know, I hear a million people would be grifting. There's no grifting. Like I'm, we could go, no, no, I'm not we could go to the, grifting. I'm no, just I'm making saying, light of the fact no, that. I know, but we could go to the corporate world and do this and make money, but we're doing this as a service. I genuinely believe this is a service to humanity. And so, you know, somebody the other, fairly recently at one of these events said, oh, you know, why aren't there homeless people here? Look, this is free and open to the public. It's you, you folks who brought up all the tickets so that nobody could come. What are they saying? There's, why aren't there homeless people at your university speech about Cor correct. free speech? 
Correct. Maybe homeless people have better things to do with their time. I mean, no offense, but like, you know, they're, they're busy eating. Nothing, nothing is preventing anybody from home or any station in life to come to any of my events. Right. They're, I try to make as many of them as possible. In fact, almost all of them <laughs> but, are free and I open mean, to the it public. It just gets so exhausting, Peter, because as you can imagine, when you're hosting a radio show for three hours a day, you get a lot of text messages from people. And every time we talk about anything, there's a text message from someone saying, yeah, but what about people who can't X, Y, Z? And right. I'm like... Well, that's sad. You know, that's bad that there are some people who don't have legs while I'm doing this right. segment about skiing. Not everyone can ski. I right. get it. But like some, right. yeah, well, what, so how, can, how dare you do this segment when there are people born without a face? So, well, some people don't have faces. I'm sorry. I, I Look, my first thing that I wanted to say last night was, well, why didn't you bring homeless people with you? Right. But if I said that, that would create an adversarial relationship. So my goal in those events given that we have a certain, I don't know what the percentage is, but a certain percentage of people who truly, genuinely despise me, the first order of business of something I want to do is use that as a possibility as a, of a cognitive and epistemological intervention. So to use the event itself to intervene in their cognitions. And so my goal last night was to, in order to do that, you make sure you don't have any adversarial relationships. And I wanted every single person walking out of that to say, wow, that, that, that was I could actually use that. That was yeah, right. helpful. This this guy is not trying to like I don't do whatever crazy thing I thought when I walked in. And and any comment that you know, well, why didn't you bring homeless people here? Anything that you do like that that Would might have been a good own. Yeah, yeah, but so that's the thing. I'm not looking for clicks. I'm not looking for views. I'm looking for to help people be more rationally and think through issues more clearly. And that's the only way we're going to get out of this epistemic sewer that we're in. There's just no other way to do it. And you see all these people trying to own people and, you, you know, they do, th that's not, that's not how we move society forward. It's when someone's a dick to you, you just being a dick to them isn't helping anything. No, it depends who the audience is, isn't it? Even, I'm still not going to be a dick to somebody, you know, I mean, if, if he's physically assaulting me, that's something different. You got to defend yourself, but. Well, what do you mean by being a dick? Because I'm just thinking of examples where someone tries to own a person on a social media platform, for right. example, and then they get slapped back in a way that shows them out, shows them up for being a hypocrite or, uh, you know, or yeah. just an asshole. And okay, that, that doesn't convince that person, obviously, but the for the onlookers, it's a win. No, I, I disagree. For the for the onlookers, they get a little joy and a giggle out of it for a few seconds, and they move on. But how do how is the situation helped from that? How did that that person's epistemic life or moral life or belief life, how was that helped? It's well, that not, person's wasn't, but their right. hypocrisy was shown up in a way that could help others. Uh, see, I, th I think those things are illusory. There's only a gotcha if somebody buys into the system in which there could be a gotcha. So, you know, when I see something like someone says something and then someone provides them a piece of evidence and they're, they're using that evidence as a gotcha, but it's only a gotcha if they buy into the fact that evidence should be used in the formation of beliefs. It's not a gotcha to them no, at no, all. No, no, but I, I said it's not, it, you're not convincing the person, you're convincing the onlookers. But, but no, I, I don't think you're convincing the onlookers. You're giving the onlookers a momentary jolt of schadenfreude, of the delight and the suffering of somebody else. But you're not advancing the conversation, you're not helping anything. You're, well, I guess we'd need to be specific about specifics, I suppose. But, true, but I true. could imagine scenarios in which there's someone who's on the fence about something. One person makes a claim, they don't know whether to believe it. Another person dunks in a way that completely annihilates the first person's claim. And then the onlooker who was on the fence goes, oh, okay. Yeah, and my, my argument to that would be, I think that it's a kind of reparable, not irreparable damage to the person who got dunked on. If they buy into the system of facts and evidence, you know, I, I think that that kind causes a kind of micro trauma that makes them worse people. Oh, definitely. Which is why we're all becoming worse people. Could agree more. Hundred percent. It's a it's a noxious dynamic, but I'm just not. I don't believe that it's without its utility. Hundred percent. Yeah. How do we get out of that spiral if we're living in a world of algorithms that favor things that get us to comment on them? Well, some of the things we're doing today, civilly talking about disagreements, uh, you know, we talked about Hungary, you're going to have someone who actually is in the government come on and have a conversation with you about that and speaking across divides, speaking across, and that's one thing that, th frankly, that the, the right has been far better at than the left, particularly in the US. It, we, we have to learn to talk to each other again. There's just simply no other way. It's the conversation is already on hard mode because you get likes, you get, you know, thumbs up or what have you when you do dunk on somebody. 
So there's, there's a kind of self-righteousness to that as well. And mm-hmm. I, I fully admit that I, I feel it myself and I do the best that I can to quelch that urge, but it's certainly there, like, to be sure. Do you think we can get to a place where, like, reasoned discourse is the dominant kind of cultural trend without a total overhaul of social media? 100%. Yeah, there's no question about you it. You think we can do oh, it yeah, even sure. with social media the way yeah. that it is? Yeah, you have to be super hopeful about these things because I think it's true. You know, Jim again will ask something like, well, what... Mr. What, Lindsay to, m- to Mr. Me. Lindsay Thank to you. you. What, what, is, what is your breaking point? What is your, what is the, what is your woke breaking point? What, what is the point? And I think the testimonies, our brains are wired for testimony. I think the testimony of the detransitioners is one thing. Uh, I think individuals have... There's just a line for some people, they just won't cross it. Mm. And once it is crossed, they're like, holy shit, like what has been going on? What I've been thinking about, what I've been... But I, I do think so, and I I don't know how social media will evolve. I don't know... Look, we, we know how to get out of this, and that it all comes back to the same thing. I'm completely convinced at 56 years old that this is the key to life. This is the secret to the whole thing. It's what people value. And some people value things that will not lead to their well-being. And if certain individuals fail to admit that, or certain individuals will have standpoint epistemology, the idea that, that um, you know, something is just true for me or not true for you or because of your immutable characteristics, you can't latch on to something that's true or what have you. Do you think, mean by that? Do you mean the kind of rhetoric around like it's my lived? This something is my, lived, lived, my experience, lived experience, and therefore you can't sort of you know use reason to contradict my claim because it's my lived experience. Yeah, and you you've demeaned truth by saying that. You've demeaned objectivity. You've demeaned not to use a big word, but epistemic adequacy. You've demeaned the tools that democratic societies use to come to knowledge and thus form a consensus on beliefs. You, the, the consensus may be different, but that's democracies are messy. That's one of the prices. But I, I do think that, that look, every, we were in a kind of myopia. Every generation thinks the one that comes after it, this has been going on for, since Aristotle, is, is problematic or the worst, or they're going to... And this, this is a momentary blip. This derangement is simply not sustainable. I think we're seeing, we're peeking out right now and, and seeing it and the tools that we enact and the way that we move forward and the way that we treat each other now, I think is indispensable to the road ahead. So we may need some kind of truth and reconciliation. I don't know. I, I do know that, that not only is there hope, but I think that there's, we're going to see a, a sea shift in a very short period of time. Now, there are things I don't know. I don't know the damage to our institutions, et cetera. Uh, And I'm also extremely hopeful in the building of new things, the building of new institutions, perhaps new platforms. So, so I think that, that, uh, what, what is the expression? My, my death has been over, my premature death has been over it, something like that. So the death of civilization (laughs) has been... Rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated? Yeah. Rumors of the civilization's demise have been greatly over-exaggerated. Yeah. Although, don't get me wrong, it's sick, perhaps even in certain places in the US on hospice, but it's not... I mean, that's a, that's such a, a good and positive articulation that I, I hesitate to continue, but I do want to get to Reed's uh, suggestion then. Yeah. So does, a- that mean that, does that mean that universities aren't up to the task of being part of that? No, they're part of the problem. Reform? Yeah, they're part of the problem. That's why your podcast it, is popular, Rogan, other people. It doesn't sound like a very, uh, you know, expansive and generous and pro-dialogue uh, attitude to take to say that the universities are irredeemable. It doesn't matter if it's pro-dialogue or not. It's just true. I mean, it, well, okay, so you, you got a lot of, you got a, a bunch of variables here. You got a, con, a, con, a con, geographical context. So I'm in the United States. It's very different. I was just in a, in a meeting with a woman from Germany, and the, I talked about building new things. She said, we can't build new things because we don't build private institutions, private academic institutions in Germany. And she explained the system and the structure of which I was only marginally familiar. So... The, you're about uh, six months to a year here behind the trend for what we see in the United States. 
I do think that the academy, we know that this is the source of the problem. We know that comes from certain departments. We know DEI has gone crazy. We know That's this- uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion right. sort of mandates, right? You know, the, the very kind of woke right. we know, trends. We know that these litmus test diversity statements, we know. So this is a whole can of worms we could unpack or rabbit hole we couldn't go down but this has been talked talked about to death so i'm not sure that's productive for me to sit here and tell you exactly what the problem is because we both agree on the problem what we may not agree upon is what to do about it i do not how think do you articulate the problem we have a bunch of pretentious charlatans ideologues who hold jobs for life and who teach our kids quote-unquote facts that are utterly untethered to reality and those facts are divisive and dangerous like what sort of facts well, well, there are two, two, two things. One, they teach them methods, ways of reasoning about the world that are actually less likely to help them come to conclusions upon which they can rely. And two, a, a sweet effects. Almost anything coming out of a discipline with the word like gender studies. For example, starting assumptions. The starting assumption that racism is built, baked into the society, the starting assumption from Derek Bell on that if whites, for example, gave blacks the right to vote. It's not because they looked at them as human. It's because they wanted to preserve their power. Facts about trans issues, facts about, you know, the papers that we wrote, things that we played on, uh, f- facts about... Those were those uh, those fake, uh, those yeah, yeah, yeah. funny fake papers that you would submit to uh, peer-reviewed journals yeah, and, and just, would get accepted just, because just, but they were just pretentious sort of uh, university philosophizing, yeah, just, armchair philosophizing. Just parenthetically, Jim and I wrote a few papers on our own subsequent to that, but we both got busy and didn't submit them. And one of those papers, where he posted the abstract to his Twitter feed, one of those uh, papers was that the Hippocratic Oath should be done away with, and instead we should have an equity oath. Sure enough, it is now reality. Like people are pledging to equity. So the stuff that, so the Overton window keeps shifting and the, the, the derangement just becomes deeper and deeper. And again, it's causal to the university. You know, the other thing is idea laundering, right? We have a problem with people entire disciplines that are, that have been made up. So people have a moral impulse, they discharge it in a journal, it comes out as not quote-unquote knowledge, and then public policies are based upon those articles and pieces of quote-unquote information. And how do you, how does, how do you even, th- I mean, if you articulated that to someone, it would seem like, okay, there's a conspiracy for you. They would think it's a vast conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. It's just... We have a bunch of really smart people who are, well, bracket that for a second. We have a bunch, in one sense, we have a bunch of really smart people who are better at coming up with good reasons for bad conclusions. And when they get together in a group, what that does is it reinforces the dominant moral orthodoxy. And if there ever were gatekeepers of reason, the philosophers or what have you, it's not that they're fallen, it's that they're in service to new masters. So they're their masters are what's morally fashionable right now. And we know that these things from the academy. But in another sense, you know, make no mistake about it, these are very mediocre minds. So what do you replace the uh, the academy with? It's a fantastic question. A few things. First, I, I just so that you know, people believe what they're willing to act on. I told my daughter, who's about to go to college, I suggested she did not go to college. And I suggested she be an electrician. It's, it's better to, this is, it took me a long time to figure this out, and then I'll answer your question directly. It is better to look at a wall for five hours a day than to learn something for five hours a day that will take you away from reality. Almost anything that ends in studies will take you away from reality. There it ends in the word studies, yeah, you mean. Right. Like there are fake martial arts that will take you away from reality too, and Reed and I have been doing jujitsu when we're here. I take my a gi everywhere we, I go and... Reed is now six lessons in. He's, do, do, he's, do, he's, doing, he's doing fantastic. Very, very happy uh, for that. But the second part of the question was, oh, so what did you well, say? Well, I said, what do you replace the academy? Oh, oh yeah, thanks, thanks, uh, thanks. Because, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm all for having electricians. Electricians are great. At some point, people also need to learn literature and history and, uh, you know, whatever else they might be learning and doctors have to learn. Well, you, you, the answer is simple. You build new things. Like the University of Austin is a new thing that we're building. But still got the word university in the name. Well, well, yeah. You, you, so, so look, you're not telling somebody not to go to, I personally don't think anybody should go to the university at this point, 
But the solution to left-wing ideological capture is not a right-wing institution. The solution is uh, ideological diversity. It's a, it's a, you have to think about what the metrics are. And that's actually super interesting what we're doing at the University of Austin is we're thinking about, we're building a university from scratch. What would that look like? What are the best practices? How do we prevent ideological capture of those institutions? So, and it's not just the University of Austin, it's Ralston College, Jordan Peterson's the chancellor, Peterson has Peterson Academy that's coming online. Those are going through the traditional regulatory apparatus and being credentialed by, uh, you know, so, the, so those degrees and those credits will actually mean something. So you can't completely build it from scratch. Mm. But my, my answer to that question is you need to build new institutions and one of the main reasons is that any effort that you put into salvaging the institutions, be it the traditional academic architecture or the infrastructure that we have now, either the physical or the way that we've, uh, disciplines have been institutionalized. Any attempt to salvage that through Chicago statements, Chicago principles, free speech, it's a waste of time. You'd be much better off spending that time building new things because we know exactly if you really want those things to work, they have fundamental incompatibilities with diversity, Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. You cannot have an Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Why not just abolish the office? I mean, some of these institutions well, good, have been around for 500 years. Well, good, good, uh, let's see if that happens. You think that's going to happen? No, because you Well, have... it might be easier to keep an institution that's been around for 500 years and just okay. abolish the office that was well, set up let, 12 years ago the, than to build an entirely new institution. Remember I told you that's, I don't know if I use the word secret, but the secret to life is it's what people value. Some people value the wrong thing. The offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion, who are offices looking for tasks to their enforces, they're the, the Gestapo, if you will, of the dominant moral orthodoxy. The only, th those would disappear tomorrow if people not only stopped valuing them, but valued the opposite, a truth-based institution. But they're not going to go away tomorrow. They're just simply not. And then you have, I just learned today, actually, in a meeting, that you don't have legacy um, enrollments here in Australia, right? So in the United What's a legacy enrollment? See, that's fascinating to me. That just is amazing to me. So in the United States, a legacy admission is if you went to Stanford and you had a kid and your kid grows up, he has, he gets points for you having oh, yeah, attended to Stanford. No. Yeah, okay. But the same people, this is the antithesis of equity. The same people course, screaming yeah. at their top of their lungs for equity, they haven't done away with legacy mm, enrollments. Mm. And a lot of these people are white, cisgen cisgender heterosexual male, but they refuse to be the quit in equity. They're not mm, quitting mm. and giving their position up to a, a marginalized person. No, because they don't believe these. I thought that was informal. I didn't know there was a formalized yeah, yeah, way yeah. in which you my get kid a, gets to yeah, go yeah, to my you, university. Yeah, I thought get it was just no, no, no. A, an you get informal a, handshake. A certain number of points on your... Uh, I mean, that's so incredibly hypocritical, isn't it? it, it I know, like... but so, so that's the thing. So, so they don't believe it. It's too stupid. But when you articulate this to someone... But wouldn't someone who's genuinely in favor of diversity and equity and inclusion say, like, that's just evidence of the kind of lip service that, that the white patriarchy gives to all of this you, you'd, stuff? You'd think. Well, don't they? Well, I don't, again, that's the thing I mean, that we the, start off the interview the with. You have to ask them. I don't, Stanford doesn't. I don't the, like to speak for other people. You'd have to ask them. Well, I'm sure that, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Ocasio-Cortez or some other yeah. prominent person who's known for being pro-diversity would be critical of those practices, wouldn't well, you? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Yeah. So the, the, the person, the people that consider me their ideological enemy, you would have to ask those people what their positions are. But there is a profound hypocrisy. And that's why I think, getting back to what you said before, we have to see epic gaslighting. There's just no two ways about it. We have to see... I never believe that. You mean there's just inevitably going to be a phase of a lot of people who believe the craziest parts of this denying that they ever did? Correct. It, it, it's an utterly inevitable. I am unshakably confident mm. of that. Mm. Yeah. Peter, it's fantastic to talk to you. I could talk to you forever. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having, having Reed and I on. Us. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you, Reed. Come on, monkey boy. Say bye-bye. Come to the microphone. There he is. Thank you, Josh. My pleasure.